Welcome to Word Birds, where you'll hear content conversations directly from the flock. Join Christopher Willis in conversation with content experts and thought leaders as they chat about how to make the most out of your words in business. Here's your host, Chris. Hello, and welcome to Word Birds, birds of a feather conversation between people that care about words. Today on the show, we have Cheryl Platts. Cheryl is the director of user experience for the player platform at Riot Games. Cheryl has a diverse background covering design, writing, speaking, and acting. And today, we're going to talk about what the challenges are when creating experiences for completely net new platforms, including gaming, AI, voice assistants. I mean, this is a really actionable episode. So let's go ahead and sit back and get some insight from the flock. Cheryl. Welcome to WordBirds. Very excited to have you here today. Thank you, Chris. I'm excited about this conversation. From a brand standpoint, it's exciting to have somebody from a gaming company here, but that's not enough to describe who you are and what you've done. You have, over the course of your career, created what I think most people would consider a lot of non-standard user experiences from gaming where you are now to AI to virtual assistants. How do you get to where you are today? It's a very interesting question. You don't start out your career seeing a lot of these things. When I was training at Carnegie Mellon and human-computer interaction, we were training on Palm Pilots. So it's been an adventure. Part of it is looking for that next great uncharted territory. I am a Star Trek fan, but it started in games. And what's interesting is even though I did spend quite a long time in enterprise software, The basis for everything in my career did start in gaming because during my two or three years, how long was it that I worked on this? I did like two years. That gave me really interesting look at the end-to-end software development process. That was like boot camp for software dev. I had the good fortune of my first project at Maxis, which is the home of The Sims, working on an expansion pack that shipped in like four months, like a piece of software that shipped Back in the day before services and online, a boxed product that shipped in four months was ridiculous. So I got to see the whole end process. And, you know, at the time I was like an intern, but got to write for the product, but also see what it was to get ESRB approval, which is the Entertainment Rating Software Board, got to see what it was to connect with our communities and figure out what was going on there. Got to see a little bit about the game design stuff, got got to figure out what it was about cross-disciplinary collaboration. And then that cycle repeated itself over and over again because I moved to the handheld sort of division in Maxis and the Sims products. And handheld products were shipping on like a six-month cycle, six to nine-month cycle. And so that when you're shipping that fast, you can't help but learn all of the things and you learn them quickly. And that prepared me to be an asset to any project I encountered later. Yeah, I can handle that. I shipped a launch title for the Nintendo DS. We didn't even have two screens until a few months before we shipped. I'm cool. I could handle this strange thing. When I started developing this, there was no Nintendo DS. And now we're running on Nintendo DS. I was in mobile at the same time that you're talking about. We were building applications for Palm Pilots before there was a BlackBerry and then evolved into BlackBerry and then into iPhone and then into Android. And you're creating something that, you know, in 2004 has one particular ideal and form factor that I didn't even know what was coming. And then you have to develop for it. It definitely changes the way that you look at software development. Yeah. New folks come into the discipline and a new tool shows up and folks get stressed. I'm like, look, none of us knew about 
voice design before it became big. We all learned on the job. Just because you didn't learn in school doesn't mean it's not going to be. You didn't take writing for Alexa in college? I did not. It's weird. Although I did in grad school. There was one really formative game for me and called Hey You Pikachu. And it was not meant for college students. It was meant for middle school students or elementary school students. But you could talk. It had a microphone. And this is in 1999 or 2000. And you could talk to Pikachu. And I was so struck. At the time, I was very enamored with this character. Didn't know why so much. But it was so emotional for me to talk to Pikachu. Like It struck me that rationally, I knew that it didn't make sense It was so emotional for me to talk to Pikachu, but I could. And so I played the heck out of that game, just being able to have that emotional connection. And so later on, when I was in the games industry and Disney came to us and was like, hey, we would like a project where we're working with RIP, Stitch, Winnie the Pooh, et cetera, and you're building relationships. Can you work with us? I'm like, yes. And if you want emotional connections, we should use the voice capabilities of the Nintendo DS, absolutely, because that'll help us drive that emotional connection between players. So I definitely took the inspiration from Hey You Pikachu and then just yanked it back into my career decades later after writing a grad school paper on the hero's journey of Pikachu and Hey You Pikachu. So you were a very individual, specific person (laughs) that they needed. Like you were the one adult that was playing the Hey You Pikachu game. And then turn that into the entire approach for the Disney gaming. But I think it's remarkable to think about moving into a new space. It's not today finding out that, hey, great, I got the job and I'm going to be writing for a voice assistant. It was, there's no such thing. It is a white piece of paper. And how do you even start with the creation of an unknown conversation? I mean, I know that there's guardrails and there's only so far that you can go in your interaction with a game like that. But it's still a lot more white space than when you're building for an on-screen experience that you're going to drive. Like we're coming from conversation. Good morning. Okay, what do you say back? How do you even start with that blank piece of paper to define where this experience that you can't see is going to go? It's a really good question. And what was interesting was on Disney Friends, which was released around 2008, we weren't quite at the era of natural language. So the voice interaction was a little bit more basic than what you and I are familiar with now, where we had sentences going back and forth. So what we had to do was develop a grammar, which was a dictionary of words and phrases that was very specific that you could say to the game and get responses back from the characters. But I learned so much from that process because that is so much more, more challenging but it requires so much more thought, premeditated thought in the choice of those words. If you have the way that voice recognition engines work, if you have a list of 20 words and all of them start with S, the engine's going to perform poorly because they all sound similarly. So you can't just choose them for meaning. You have to choose them for acoustic uniqueness. And we had the gameplay element. We had to choose the sounds for acoustic uniqueness, for semantic validity and also for emotional meaning in the context of the game. And I love this story that I was the lead producer on this game and I had this awesome lead engineer and lead artist. I was walking past my lead engineer's office and he had the development Nintendo DS on his desk and he happened to walk by as he was doing a little test with Stitch. And he leans over and he leans over, whispers in the mic, obvious Stitch. And I'm like, why is he whispering at it? Obviously doesn't work because then he, he does it. I love you, Stitch. It still doesn't work. And so then he just, I love you, Stitch. And he yells it. 
watching this adult person like struggle with saying I love you to the game taught me a lot about, again, how intellectually we know that this is not a commitment. It shouldn't be a thing. (laughs) It's hitting us at a different level. And we actually changed. We added an alternate word for that particular interaction, like friend. So for people who who might not be, because especially, you know, gender is a spectrum, but people who are raised sort of like with male standards might not be encouraged to say, I love you out loud. So what else could we give them to get the same reaction from Stitch after watching someone go through that? So there was so much going into like the choice of the content. You spoke and came back. That's remarkable to think about. And I think the acoustic aspect of it is interesting too. I mean, every evening, Alexa, turn off Blue Room. I'm sorry, I can't find Living Room. Okay. It's so Why can't I just change the name of my room? I just need to change the name of my room. I could avoid this conversation every night, but it is where I live. It's it's how how it works for me. Uh, Hey, Diane, I thought we were selling toasters. We are. Well, some of our translated content is calling them baby fire machines. Oh, dear. Looks like this team needs Acrolinks, the content impact platform that avoids ambiguities in source content and improves content translation. I don't want to go too much into the technical stuff, but a common complaint that comes up is why can't I change the name of my Alexa device? Can I give it an arbitrary name? And it's that acoustic uniqueness thing. Part of the special sauce in a device like Alexa is that there's local recognition and internet recognition. And so there's the reason that it's not as creepy a listening device is that when it's listening, most of the time, it's only capable of recognizing its own name. And when it recognizes its own name, then it sends your stuff to the cloud. If you were allowed to just create, but that requires specialized hardware with local algorithms for detecting a few key words. If you had to broaden that to everybody, any possible word, you'd have to go to the internet to recognize your random name for Alexa. And then it would be more of a wiretap maybe than something appropriate for a home. So it's tough. You lose flexibility, but you get security. The same is true for devices where you only get to choose when you only get to choose specific room names and they're not letting you pick stuff. They think they're protecting you from yourself. They're like, okay, well, we picked these and we've tested their acoustic uniqueness and we think they're going to work. My experience has been that is not always the case. They are not always the best set of words for different rooms, but often the intention is in place. Today, sitting here, you're the user experience lead for the player platform at Riot Games. So for people that know or that don't, that's the home of League of Legends, iconic game in the gaming world. Tell me about your role there. I mean, you have, there's expectations on, I think, the business to sound a certain way. You're not necessarily touching the game on a day-to-day basis, but the peripheral content probably has to play by the same rules as the user experience across the gaming platform. Yeah. And so director of user experience for player platform, which is essentially things that are game adjacent. And so it's, it's interesting at a, we're a smaller company than you would think for the number of gamers we sort of impact, but we also have several sort of divisions and groups and things. And so we have our game teams, player platform supports the games, kind of like the embrace around the games that keeps everything going. And then there's also a publishing team that handles things like our website, our outreach to players, emails and things like that. So we're sort of in the middle of those two groups. And In addition to my role as director of user experience for Player Platform, where I work with a team of about 14 designers right now, and within those, we have two content designers specifically, and I'm also the lead for the UX craft at Riot All Up. So I'm trying to help all designers at Riot level up their craft, help us with recruiting, all that stuff. 
but it's with tone, it's very interesting for a where we reside in player platform because there's a more of a playful collegial tone when you're a game company trying to reach out to your players. But player platform, a lot of what we offer is things like authentication, account management, and the glue that keeps the games functioning. And so you want to provide that tone, but it's in situations where there's heavy constraint, where there's also a much higher need to maintain trust and make sure people feel like this is something that's totally 100% professional, trustworthy, is going to keep their data secure. We have a few apps like Riot Client and Riot Mobile, where we have a little bit more space to play. But even still in those spaces, the content from our publishing teams about like a specific event may be where there's like a ton of room to play. So a lot of times the content challenges for us in player platform revolve around taxonomy, how we're referring to things. We have the concept of a Riot ID, which is your player name that has two pieces, the Riot ID, and then there's tagline which comes with like a little hashtag. But there's also League of Legends has a different concept of a player name, which is right now a summoner name. So we in Player Platform have to figure out how do we refer to those things in content so people don't get confused? Which thing are we talking about right now? The summoner name, the Riot ID? How do we explain what a Riot ID is to people who are there for the first time? How do we explain what the tagline is, which is a part of the Riot ID? Is that the right taxonomy for these things? Do we want to drive feedback back into the architecture of things to make things less confusing? And Player Platform also supports all of our developers. And so there's a huge content opportunity there around how we make it easier for games and R&D to start onboarding. Because what It's funny, at the 10th anniversary of League of Legends, there was a big 10th anniversary announced sort of moment where Riot sort of took their big step from, there's a lot of joking around Riot game to Riot games, where we sort of announced our foray into games beyond League of Legends. And good news is several of those successfully landed and we have multiple games today, but we're still improving how we keep that plural going, like the next game, how we get that onboarded. As you can imagine at any game studio, the second time you do a game, it's still very bespoke. It's still very white glove. I'm like, okay, how do we do this the first time? What do we do now? And at the point now where we're really reflecting, on, we have to get better at doing this frequently. We have to be able to scale this. So when I started at Riot, which was about 10 months ago, we had only just hired our first UX writer on the player platform team, which is also our first UX writer in Riot. And about two months ago, with Noah Lani, she's been working with us on our player platform player-facing stuff. And then a month or two ago, I brought on Tom, who's going to be working with us on our developer side, on developer-facing content for information architecture, taxonomy, consistency, and in some cases, like service design too, with relation to content. We have really talented tech writers and some of the work they do has impact on UX. And so how do we partner with them to make sure that the pieces of their content that needs to kind of end up in microcopy on our pages ends up there in the right way? How do we help them get to uh, standardized document structures that show up well in our CMS? All of that good stuff. The user experience isn't in one place of the business. It's across it. And a lot of businesses miss that. I see that in the enterprise quite a bit. So we're creating content in marketing, we're creating content in tech docs, in support, in service, in knowledge. And none of it is sort of hierarchically governed. So at the top of the hierarchy, we all spell the name of the company right. And then we inherit down into the areas that we inhabit and build for with these rules that flow down. You don't see that. You see segments of the company building content the way that they want to and not handing off. And I feel like for you, 
that handoff has to be very important because the software is being built and there are words in the software and those words need to make it into the script. Those words need to make it into the educational content, needs to make it into all of the blog content. It needs to make it into the peripheral content. There needs to be consistency across this experience. And then the question that I would have is when you went from game to games, do you need to recraft any of the peripheral content to be the voice of the new game? So that if I'm coming in, not for League of Legends, but for, I'm going to say this wrong, but Valorant, am I seeing something that's more in line with the experience that I'm expecting for that game than if I were coming for League of Legends? And I was not here when we did that big switch, but I will say that at that time, the company did go through a big shift in how all of the content was positioned so that it could become more game agnostic. And so the game specific stuff was closer to game. And, you know, we were moving towards giving games a game specific place to shine and having more of a Riot voice. That You can see that if you kind of look back through all of our stuff and now with a Riot blog and all of our presence everywhere. When it comes to player platform specific stuff, one place where this need to sort of share across has been really interesting is, as you may know, in June, a deal was announced between Riot and Microsoft to release Game Pass to Game Pass members will eventually have access to benefits on Riot's platform. And this is a new type of partnership for Riot. And it brings a higher content standard than I think we had kind of seen our teams dealing with because it's not just player platform content. It's we have to deal with Microsoft's brand standards and Microsoft's communication standards. And we have to deal with legal content that needs approvals. And we have to make sure that we're being very precise in describing benefits and what things that are going to happen. And we found very quickly working on that, that the previous systems we had on player platform to deal with how we wrote content and how we put it into designs weren't working. So we're very much in a storming phase right now. We're like, how? okay, great. This is an opportunity for us to get better. Because you mentioned like the top down piece. I would say we are not at that stage in our development yet, but we are at a stage where people are talking to each other and people want. And it's interesting too, because game teams have their own universes. To a certain extent, games control their own destiny. It is really at the player platform level and the publishing level. We have to talk to each other and be aligned. And then there's certain concepts the game teams need to align with when it comes to like talking about certain aspects of the player account. But for us on player platform, dealing with the scope of the Game Pass project, we have been figuring out how do we track content at scale? How do we process around content? So we can say, okay, this string is in draft. This string requires Microsoft approval. This string requires brand approval. This string requires legal approval. This string is assigned to the content writer. This string is assigned to like UX. This is assigned to visual design for incorporation into the visuals. We've been experimenting with using Airtable for that because that tool was available to us so we can use it in real time. But it's a journey for us to figure out how we can collaborate at scale. If that pilot works, that gives us a path towards repeating it on other parts of our projects and maybe getting towards more of a a centralized taxonomy that we could share with other teams and help that cross-company communication. But we are still in experimental mode, I would say. And it's a challenge for any business. I have a customer that builds motorcycles. And the idea of much like in the gaming industry, you end up hiring people that are fans of what you do. And the motorcycle world has a specific vernacular, a lot of slang. And this company doesn't want that in their product manuals, for instance. And so the way that they describe hooking up the battery 
on page three of the manual and then page 47 and then page 372 and then on the website and in emails they send out and then in marketing material all needs to be consistent. And that's a yes. everyday battle. It's not the same person writing it in every case. And it's not the same person taking that modular content and putting it into something. Everybody's just touching. And how do you manage the clarity and consistency and the alignment of terminology across this huge lexicon of content, it hangs everybody up. I think that's something that great businesses continue to struggle with, but are moving in directions in a right direction around right now. Certainly not the first time I've kind of been on a journey like this at a company. It's always interesting because when you start on it, it must be a tool that does this, but they cost money and there's infosec explorations, there's vetting. The time it takes to get the tool that's perfect for this in the time that it takes to explore that, you accrue so much design debt in that time. And so perfect is the enemy of progress right. in many cases. And so that's where we are is like sometime down the line, it is very possible that like the more formal CMS system might make sense for what we're attempting to do here. But in the moment when we are heads down on some very important time sensitive work, how might we get better at how we partner on content in the moment without going through the formal, let's do an RFP for a new software tool to track all of this. What do we have available to us? How do we MacGyver this in the moment to get better at what we're doing? Exactly. So I think, as I said, you're fascinating and we could do this all day, but if people that are listening to this want to learn more from you, want to take more away from you, I can think of at least one spot, probably several that they could go to get more information. But one is your book, Design Beyond Devices. What are people going to take away from that, just high level? Well, Design Beyond Devices is a book about expanding our design tool set and to really take the next step into the future. I tell folks that it's the design manual for folks who want to build the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Because if you think about Star Trek and you think about the people interacting on that bridge, they're seamlessly moving between interaction modalities. They're moving between physical interaction modalities. They may be flipping switches. They may be using touch screens. They're talking to the computer. Sometimes they're even using like augmented reality. And similarly, they're getting different input, sound, haptics, and visuals. And the show just shows these things seamlessly working together. And from experience, the more seamless it looks, the more intentional our work has been along the way to get that. The fact that that's seamless in times of stress Thumbs up to the hypothetical designers of the future that made that happen. So this book is about how do we take the next steps towards that future? Focusing just on mobile or just on desktop or just on Alexa prevents us from coordinating that vision, prevents us from being able to follow customers from their phone to our website, to Alexa. And so it's adding an extra layer of design awareness and design rigor on top of what we already have. It doesn't take away the need to have people who are specialists at a particular device. So there's some content about representing what we know about how their behavior manifests. So we know how we can respectfully interact with and interrupt them in the moment. Because I know we've all been in a situation where we opened up an app on a desktop and it was like, I'm not ready for you right now. You go start typing an email and then it pops up in the middle of the email and pulls your focus away from the sentence. That's rude. The system should know that you're active, but it has all the data, but they never bothered to model what you were doing. It wants you to adapt to it at the moment. So we talk about that. We talk about notifications. We talk about 
the different types of input and output, how to coordinate across those things. And we also talk about like the ethics of inclusion and how to assess the impact of these systems. The larger and more robust these systems become, the more likely it is that they're going to have a deeper impact on your customers. It's expansive, but hopefully broadens the mindset a designer brings to open up new possibilities for following customers across the entire life cycle and all of their devices. And I designed it to be fairly practical. So there are frameworks you can apply, design system guidance, things that you can put into your work immediately. And then there are supporting resources on my website for folks that want to take it to the next level that's all available for free. So if somebody's trying to get in touch with you to, to figure the next thing out, answer the question, I figure LinkedIn, maybe your website, what's the best way to find you? I am on many things. LinkedIn is a good way. I'm definitely on LinkedIn, ideaplats.com. My design education company is there. And so there's a variety of materials. That's where the reference materials for my book are located. You can email me at Cheryl at ideaplats.com if you have specific questions. And I'm also on Twitter at Funny Godmother. As you mentioned, I have lots of different interests. And so that name is just sitting in the middle of all of them. <laughs> Fantastic. Cheryl, thank you very much for being on the show today. I think everybody's going to get a lot out of this and hopefully we'll get you back here sometime. That would be great. Thank you so much for the chat, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to join us next time for more insights from people who love words. This podcast was brought to you by Acrolinks. Continue honing your enterprise content by checking out other episodes at acrolinks.com slash wordbirds. If you have questions or comments, feel free to get in touch with Chris and his team by sending a message to word.birds at acrolinks.com. That's all for now. See you next time.